These aliens don't even know what pleasure is. They gotta live a little. Like, what are they doing? Come on, guys. Yeah, what are you doing? What do you exist for, wormhole aliens? Shooting orbs out your wormhole. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everyone. I'm Cole Paulson. And I'm Lily Rosson. Welcome to Deep Space Wine, a podcast that attempts to recap and decode every episode of Deep Space Nine, the forgotten stepchild of the Star Trek universe. Each episode, we will share a bottle of wine, wind down, and then wind ourselves up again with our strong opinions about DS9. Mm -hmm. Because in our social experience, there is nothing people love more than when someone talks at length about Star Trek or wine. (laughs) Yeah, you and I have known for years that we enjoy drinking wine together. And I think we we were um, about halfway through a bottle one night when we also discovered our mutual love of Star Trek. Yeah. But you had not watched Deep Space Nine. No, surprise. Yeah, so it (laughs) took years of convincing and you finally started watching. Uh, And now we've got this podcast. Yeah, no regrets. Our our destiny is fulfilled. Yeah. Much like Benjamin says. Oh. Mm. Uh, And you have uh, chosen a wine to pair with this first episode, yes? And I'm really excited. Tell me about it. Uh, so tonight's wine is a 2022 Village Pinot Noir. This is by one of my favourite producers, Gentle Folk, which is located in Basket Range, which is in the Adelaide Hills in South Australia. They make minimal intervention wines, but they're always so like clean and classic tasting. They don't taste like dishwater, um, like a lot of natural organic wines can. Not all. They can. <laughs> can, I, can I try it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me crack it open. Mm. Mm. Set ASMR noises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I do have a bunch of tasting notes for it. Yeah, okay. Um, it, looks, but, it looks delicious. Yeah. Uh, so it's so from the Adelaide Hills, so it's like from quite a cool climate, like a lot of Pinot Noir. And these are some notes from the producers. They say it has a lot of drinkability and a dance of tannin across the palate. Ooh, um, I like that but that it's a bit more structured and brooding than previous vintages. Structured and brooding? Well, have I got a TV show that sounds like that too? (laughs) Right? I think it was kind of perfect. Um, But yeah, I did also look up a a bunch of other tasting notes and they said that it has good smashability. So I think that's important too. Um, A few characters on Deep Space Nine have good smashability as well. Oh, oh, do you tell? No, 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 let's wait. I think this wine's teeing us up great. It's Dax. I mean, what? <laughs> what? Oh, oh, but which one? Ah. Oh, man. Step at a time. <laughs> so I thought maybe we could go into a little bit about our personal experiences with Star Trek and our relationship with Star Trek together. I uh, would like nothing more. Cheers to yes. um, toward episode one. Woo! ASMR. Oof. What do you think? I've, I'm feeling brooding structure dancing, dancing on my palate a dancing tannin there's a, yeah. a brooding dance yeah it actually has like a little bit more tannin than i was expecting maybe it just needs to open up a little bit but there's still like a lot of fruit it's very smashable it's delicious yeah. thank you so star trek you and me <sighs> sure maybe i'll start because i think my relationship with star trek started years and years before yours uh i mean i've only been drinking wine for a decade but i have known that Star Trek is the meaning of the universe since <laughs> I was just a little kid. Uh, yeah, I have been a Trekkie nerd since elementary school, but it wasn't until Deep Space Nine, actually, that it became <laughs> my life for Great. a few years in yeah, middle yeah. school. Amazing. Okay, do you remember those posters in the 90s that would go, 
everything I need to know in life, I learned from dot, dot, dot. Mm. Everything I need to know in life, I learned from Star Trek. <laughs> As a young, impressionable 12-year-old. Preteen. <laughs> yeah. Cute. It's that age where you're, you're starting to form your own worldview, get a sense of what you think is important and how to understand the world. And this show about humans trying to do just that was there for me. Wait, can you like can you paint me a little picture of preteen Cole just for the preteen just for the Cole listeners? Was a cutie. He's a little Aww. chubster. Aww. He didn't have loads of friends, so he spent his time staring at maps of the world and uh, staring at the night sky. Aww. I grew up in Colorado. We would sit around the campfire, and my favorite thing to do was truthfully <laughs> stare up at the stars. And I, I, was, I was an imaginative sort. I, I enjoyed creative writing and things. And I would look at a star and I would imagine an alien race that has, is populating that solar system. And I would just think what's going on in that completely different corner of the, the galaxy. Mm. I mean, I, I have so much to say about what Star Trek told this confused, curious little 12-year-old who wanted to seize the universe's full potential but also wanted to make sense of things and wanted to, wanted to do things right. And I think a good Star Trek hero wants to experience the universe, but in a way that, uh, you know, that you don't see heroes living with their values on their sleeve in most shows and movies. Mm. And it meant a lot to me that the conflict each week wasn't, you know, are we using the right sort of gun on these aliens? But it was, are we doing the right thing? Yeah. Right? The stakes are low, but are they? <laughs> the stakes are sometimes incredibly low. But that doesn't for, mean for your humanity. our officers yeah. aren't wringing their hands because yeah. we've got to do the right thing about the microbes' ascensions. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's amazing because preteen Lily was just like wearing sparkly crop tops and looking for the next Shania Twain single. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a very elevated young person. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to wear to the next blue light disco? Uh, but it sounds like a lot more fun than mm, my mm, mm. <laughs> And when did you discover Star Trek then? So I was pretty late to the party. I think I was about 24 and I was working a ski season in Whistler back when I was pretending that I could do that kind of thing. And like, I didn't have a terrible immune system and the cold just like literally makes me so sad. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I got sick a whole bunch of times in Whistler and one of the times I was like convalescing on the couch and decided to give Star Trek Next Gen a crack. I'd heard some things about it. I'd had a similar experience with Star Wars when I was about 19, watched mm -hmm. that for the first time, mm -hmm. thought that was pretty good, mm -hmm. uh, got a bit obsessed with it. So yeah, late to the party, but yeah, I was basically just in a fever with various infections, like a sinus infection and a throat infection, ear infection, and I just put on Star Trek Next Gen and then like kind of fell asleep in a fever for the whole first season, which I realize now really benefited me because that is rough. <laughs> it's the right way to watch Star Trek Next Generation Shit. season one. Oh yeah. man, that <laughs> is rough. Right. Um, but yeah, I sort of came to around season two and I was hooked. I loved it. I think for a lot of the reasons that you expressed. Well, there's, but there's also something comforting about Star Trek that I want to get into also in the course of this podcast. It's the chicken noodle soup for the little yeah. nerd soul. Yeah. And um, it's what I turn on. I, I, I go through periods in life where I need Star Trek more than yeah, other times. Agreed. And um, after the 2016 election, I just needed <laughs> weeks of Star Trek. <laughs> I just... <laughs> 
this, this, things are a little rough, but don't worry. Sometime in, in the future. And at some point in the future, this is what it'll be. Right. In, in a post-capitalist society. How great does that sound? Yeah. yeah. Sounds wonderful. But yeah, I get what you're saying. It, it's sort of the weekly format, the low stakes, the sort of ponderous philosophical questions. Yeah, I think, I think actually, though, a lot of this applies more to Next Generation and Voyager for me. So yeah, I watched Next Gen and then eventually I watched Voyager um, and it actually took a bit of convincing from Cole. Whew, it took years of work. Yeah. What, what, what turned you off about Deep Space Nine? Look, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I did fall asleep a bunch of times in <laughs> Emissary Part 1 and part one 2. What? Like, this yes, I tried. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> and look at you now. I know. How far you've come. I know. <laughs> the star of a podcast. About <laughs> I'm so proud. I know. Deep Space Nine is, is my one Star Trek love, but I'm so glad I got you on board with it because as, as I'm going to talk about a bit in, in this first episode, I think it dares to ask questions that the more comforting Star Treks are too afraid to ask. Questions that keep surprising even the, the most committed Star Trek viewer who, who's ready to question the human existence and our purpose and um, our ethics. But at the same time, it's just amazing storytelling. It's great. And I, I actually got maybe obsessed right around the end of season five, beginning of season six. And I just, this little 13 year old was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to television. Mm. And it also set me on a course of just storytelling in general, because I think Deep Space Nine tells stories, amazing stories that other Star Trek series have failed to do. Uh, Star Trek shows can make you think, but Deep Space Nine tells incredible stories. And it's made me obsessed with what makes a good story. There's things that even 30 years on, they do really well. That's amazing. Um, I use it as a comfort watch and a sleep aid. <laughs> oh, yes. A classic Lily Cole Deep Space Nine marathon. Usually involves Lily falling asleep 30 minutes through. So I'm impressed that you were even Thank able you. to get through a whole episode and put some thoughts together. You did did you make it all the way it's, through Emissary? Uh, look, it's pretty dense. Um, so It is yeah. dense. It's dense and it's ambitious. Well, let's get into it. Emissary parts one and two. Happy 30th anniversary to this episode. No. This episode aired 30 years ago <gasps> this year. Oh my God. Happy birthday, Chase. Happy birthday, Emissary. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a really hard job to do. And what was amazing to me is that it, it did that job even better than I realized. And, and that job was, firstly, it had to prove that the world needed another Star Trek. Mm. The next generation was still going, and it was a smash. And so why do we need uh, another show? And it actually got me thinking, this was, this was 1993, and the world had changed pretty dramatically in just a few years. OG Star Trek back in the 60s was at the height of the space race, uh, height of the Cold War, and it's all about, oh, we can all come together and explore the stars. And the world that Deep Space Nine showed up in was ready for a different Star Trek, and mm-hmm. it, it delivers in this episode. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing it had to prove is that you can still be Star Trek on a space station. So this is the third Star Trek show ever, and the first two are the Enterprise, flying around, exploring strange new worlds, seeking out new civilizations, and then suddenly there's going to be a new Star Trek show about sitting on a space station. Yeah. Or, or just a space hotel, yeah. as Gene Roddenberry actually Whoa. allegedly called it at one point. Burn. And I've got some interesting things to say about that. But... So this episode not only says, yes, we need a new, different Star Trek, but it needs to be on a space station to continue 
pushing Star Trek in new directions. And what amazed me is that Emissary does that in some ways that I, yeah. I hadn't realized. Amazing. I mean, my sister, she won't watch it because she finds it too claustrophobic and complex. Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Mm. So if I am watching it as a comfort watch, she, she makes me switch over to Voyager where literally nothing happens. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It does, it does have a, a totally different feel. Yeah, it's giving the world something different. A lot of writers who had been writing for Deep Space Nine tried to uh, write for Voyager as well and, and had to leave in a frustration because they wanted to tell these more intricate stories. <laughs> And they were told, sorry, Voyager is an episodic show. Yeah. Tell a cute little story in 40 minutes. And they said, mm, I'm going to go back to Deep Space yeah. Nine because that's what like, the real storytelling like, is. No, tell a boring story about <laughs> Tom Paris. <laughs> the most boring ones are about Tom Paris. <laughs> oh, he's the worst. <laughs> All right, so should we dive in? Let's do it. The Emissary. Emissary parts one and two. January uh, 1993. Let's yeah. go back. Yeah, uh, so I've got a little intro here. Please. Emissary Parts 1 and 2, in which we meet our main players, see what the future holds for civilian fashions. Spoiler, it's a lot of onesies. <laughs> so many onesies and tunics. <laughs> um, get an incredible amount of exposition about Bajoran social, political, and religious context, mm. and find out about Benjamin Sisko's destiny. Oof. O'Brien rolls up his sleeves. Kira proves that she is a strong 90s brand feminist. Dax is a hottie. Bashir bumbles about offending everyone. Ugh. Quark reopens his bar slash gambling house slash hollow brothel. Cisco <laughs> receives trauma counseling from wormhole aliens. And Odo stares at people off puttingly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like I said, this is a dense text, um, an am- ambitious two part first episode. Uh, it's t- two hours, and n- not only do you have to set up each of these eight characters, but this incredibly complex geopolitical situation. And sci-fi on top of it. The good heaping of just classic Star Trek mm-hmm. on top of it. Yeah. And it does it all in a way that I think was actually yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Uh, thanks for summing up what I, what I just said. <laughs> 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 so uh, should we roll up our proverbial sleeves? Oh, please. Great. Take another sip of wine. All right. Open on a Star Wars-style crawl exposition. It's a Star Wars ripoff. Explaining the events when Captain Jean-Luc Picard was taken by the Borg and surgically altered to become Locutus. Uh, He leads an assault on Starfleet at Wolf 359. Mm. And I think this is season three of Mm -hmm. STNG. Is that right? Yeah, the end of season three. So what's happening is Cisco is in a command role on board a ship being attacked by the Borg. Um, And there's lots of pew-pew. Lots of pew-pew. Yeah. Uh, you get a classic Star Trek bridge explosion with bodies just like flinging everywhere. My mom always says, why weren't they wearing seatbelts? <laughs> <laughs> but she's, she's right. They're just like falling all over the consoles. Uh, shit's going crazy. Sparky sparkies. Um, and the warp core is damaged. Uh, and in this scene, we're introduced to Benjamin Sisko's perfect diction, his son, Jaco, and the body of his dead wife, Jennifer. Oof. Right. Sorry. It's a lot, hey? Yeah. 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 Oh, she did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we are suddenly thrown into this horrific attack. The Borg, of course, are this relentless, uh, relentlessly trying to pursue uh, perfection. assimilating yeah. Yeah, p- perfection and yeah. assimilation. Um, sort of like a, a big Pac-Man just coming yeah. along, chewing up everything they can. Yeah. How great is it that the Borg are Star Trek's favorite nemesis? Maybe overused yes. on other shows. They were the villain for every single season of the recent Star Trek Picard. So I think it's amazing that this is the only time they're even mentioned mm. on Deep Space Nine. Um, that being said, I think it's 
perfect to just have this reference to one of the most iconic moments of Next Generation. But also, I think putting the Borg here at the beginning is also really important in terms of what the Borg uh, represent and how they are this antithesis to humanity. And I think what they, what they symbolize for Star Trek actually comes back in some interesting ways for the rest of the episode. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm excited to hear about it. Um, but what I really want to talk about is uh, Benjamin Sisko's intonation in <laughs> this scene. You, you, don't, you don't like it? <laughs> um, it's, it's always surprising and you never know what's going to come. Um, and I will do an impression. Oh, I'm ready. All right. So say like you're trying to um, help your wife, uh, the body of your wife, who's like underneath all this rubble. And there's like a blue ensign and you're like, hey, blue ensign. He's a bullion. Go on. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be a theme. Um, And if you were like, help me, how would you say that? Would it be, help me? (laughs) Help me? Yes, I know the line. So great. Look, Cisco is just joining the the pantheon of great Star Trek captains who speak very vehemently. Yeah. I, he's he's trained in the school of Kirk. All right, Spock, fire the phasers. Yeah. I mean, come on. I just I like the Shakespearean tones of Picard. I'm a Picard <sighs> lover. I'm sorry. He's grown on me. I won't lie. He's grown on me. But look, this is this is great. So Jennifer's dead. His wife is dead. Uh, he's managed to get Jake out of there. They made it to the escape pod and. Cisco watches from the window of the pod as his ship explodes. A defeated man. Mm, a broken man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's a cut to Stardate 4637913 three years later. And we get a lovely wooden scene between Cisco and his son Jake on the dock of a lake doing some fishing. Cisco is apparently breaking the news to Jake that they're moving to a space station near Bajor. Cisco's mm. comms badge lets him know that they will be docking at Deep Space Nine. And we get the title of the show. I mean, look, I've skipped over this uh, wooden interaction between the two. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's, I mean, I will just say Wesley Crusher. (laughs) Great. This kid on The Next Generation was famously not a hit with Mm -hmm. fans. Mm -hmm. Um, It got to the point where even his mother (laughs) got sick of him and said, shut up, Wesley. Yeah. Um, And yet, right after the, the failure of... A child character. They have another child on the main cast, and I will just say it's one decision that I'm not totally um, sure was the right one. Oh, Jaco! But you know, Look, we do get his amazing, uh, the first of his amazing futury high waisted onesies. <laughs> the kid's got some great fashion, and it only gets better over it the course of the show, better. right? Yeah. Like so many things about Deep Space Nine, Jake's tunics just get better and better. So good. <laughs> so they exit the holodeck. And we see through the window the first view of Deep Space Nine. Mm. What do we think about the design of Deep Space Nine? I love it. Yeah. The, the, the design of the station, I will say, one of uh, so many really bold decisions <laughs> that I think pay off. Like, the, the creators of the show knew they couldn't just do another cool Federation spaceship zooming through space. And they said, we got to make this different. And you have this claw space station. Yeah. Um, an alien space station has been abandoned by its predecessors, but we'll get into that. Um, I love the design. What do you think? Um, yeah. Bold, I think is the right word. It's like, it's kind of spidery, isn't it? Definitely spidery. Spidery, claw-like. 
A little bit like a fidget spinner. I mean, it's sort of, it's meant to evoke this sort of alien, unsettling, eerie place. Yeah. And that and is yet, where we're going to live. Home. Yeah, we're going to live with these characters for seven years. And even that, just settling into the discomfort almost, yeah. is, what, is what Deep Space Nine is about. Now, the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> song, this is probably the only time they need discussing on this podcast. Yes. But if the goal was to show that uh, space can be cold and empty and quiet, yeah. then I think they nailed it. Yeah, but I think I think you're right. It is about settling into the discomfort of DS9. Yeah. Like, next gen is, like, just light and bright and... Uh, and motion. This ship is yeah. zooming through space. Yeah. It's got places to go. And this station is just sitting here. It's here. We're still looking at it from 30 different viewpoints. And, I, again, a lot of viewers, when they heard Star Trek was going to be on a space station... They were understandably concerned. Like, do we want to just sit around? And it's kind of amazing that the opening credits say, you know what? Yes, you do. You do. do. And you're going to be grateful. You do. And darned if they weren't right. Yeah. I also love this score for what it's worth. I think it's the most Uh, beautiful opening score. Triumphant horns, I think Mm. I wrote. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. So now we're on Commander Benjamin Sisko's first station lock. And he gives us some exposition about the provisional Bajoran government establishing a presence near Bajor following the withdrawal of Cardassian occupational forces. And he, he arrives on the promenade and it's just in tatters and ruins. And uh, I was actually reading that the, the, um, the episode was written by the creators Rick Berman and Michael Piller. And they actually had a big fight about this. And Michael Piller insisted... He needs to arrive to a broken station. Mm. Deep Space Nine needs to start in ruins because this is a show about rebuilding. Mm. Um, and Rick Berman is like, no, I mean, this the the new setting of this show needs to needs to be clean and, and full of energy and sleek. And he's like, that's that's not the show I want to tell. Mm. So perhaps like uh, Cisco himself. Perhaps. Oh. Mm. So next we're introduced to the fact that Miles O'Brien from Star Trek Next Gen is one of Cisco's officers. I think he's the, the head engineer. What is it? What's his title? Operations. Oh, Chief sorry. of Operations. Chief of, oh, apologies. <laughs> um, and Miles already has his sleeves rolled up, so you know she's about to get done. The guy gets to work, and he's already struggling with some, uh, some ODN conduits. And I tell you, when you've had a bad day with some ODN conduits, <laughs> the poor guy, he suffers. Oh, man. We've also got a creepo old Bajoran religious dude with a skull cap, mm-hmm. and he appears and tells Cisco that the prophets await you, mm-hmm. but Cisco rebuffs him with another time, perhaps. Because he's a Starfleet officer, and Starfleet, as we know from two shows, do not mess with religion. Religion is old-fashioned and outdated and traditional, yeah. and we are men of science. Yeah. It's like currency. It, Ew. Yeah. And Cisco just says, um, don't you know you're on a Star Trek show? We don't talk about religion here. Get away from me. And old man skull just... Just nods knowingly and yeah, skulks yeah. off. Yeah. Mm. Um, Miles takes the opportunity to complain about his wife, Keiko, uh, who hasn't happy with her <laughs> one of, daughters. One of many running themes <laughs> in this complex show. Poor Miles. I mean, maybe he thought things were going to be different with life off the Enterprise, but uh, it's looking the same. It is not a lot of room for characterization in the opening, but I love that he's, his sleeves are rolled up. He is an uh, enlisted officer. So all the other Starfleet officers went through... Starfleet Academy and learned uh, command and science and and geopolitics and O'Brien needed a job mm. so he got hired to fix things on starships yeah. and I think it's it's actually sort of cool that he adds just that flavor of um, 
of, of the maintenance guy yeah. to this show. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it rounds out in an interesting way. Yeah. I mean, he what? He was just like running the transporters on the Enterprise. I mean, the poor guy. He finally escaped transporter room two, you know? Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he did was, love it, though. He was there a lot. Oh, he loved it. <laughs> um, so then after this, Miles tells Cisco that Picard wants to see him on board the Enterprise. And Cisco is not pleased with this news. Is there a beef? But who doesn't like Picard? Right? Picard's what could be hero. the possible reason? Um, and then Cisco does some pretty strange parenting with Jake. And he does... One of my favorite things in this episode, which is like a weird little come hither hand gesture. Uh, you mean an incredibly acted hand gesture? Go yeah, on. Perfect. Um, and it made me think, do some of their scenes kind of feel like Cisco is flirting with Jake? <laughs> I'm going to say that a lot. I often think people are flirting with someone. But just the way he is with him, it, it's like, it's sort of off-putting. Well, and so maybe I'll, I'll mention Avery Brooks, the actor, who um, never wanted to work in science fiction. I don't think he'd ever dreamed of being a Star Trek captain. Mm. But when the role was offered to him and he saw that it was a single black father, he thought, this is an incredible story that you don't see on TV. And he wanted to be a black father with a son who he cares deeply about and looks out for, because that is something you didn't see a lot of on American television in the 90s. And so when you see Avery Brooks as Cisco put in that that love and affection with his son, even if (laughs) maybe... Doesn't always read right because Cisco's acting choices are, you know, they're, they're, they're choices. Wow. Um, it's, again, something that is, is revolutionary in, in 1993. Okay, great. I'm yeah. glad you're here to tell me because that has put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you criticize the relationship between Cisco and Jake? Go on. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that is a beautiful bond and all their scenes are acted perfectly and uh, we love every <laughs> one of better. them. That's better. Sure, sorry. <laughs> Yucks. Um, okay, so cut to the command center. So we see that for the first time. Uh, it's got the Cardassian architecture. The temperature is set to 32 degrees Celsius, which sounds amazing. Cardassians like it hot. Yeah, and O'Brien's sort of wondering why it's designed this way and Cisco points out that um, all eyes have to lead up to... Uh, the prefect, who the, the person in command. Yeah, so these, these Starfleet officers have uh, have taken over this abandoned station um, that even the architecture of the station is based on an ideology that is, is the opposite of Starfleet in so many ways. It's about hierarchy um, and it's about control. And you see these humans put in a fish-out-of-water environment. And I think even the set design is really interesting in that yeah. respect. It's not just uh, Keiko who's upset with this. It's everybody. You can't blame Keiko for living in that spider claw. <laughs> but they palace. will try to blame Keiko for everything. Oh, okay. Who suffers more, Miles or Keiko? They're... An ongoing question. Oh, God. <laughs> Both equally. Uh, so then Miles warns Cisco about the spicy nature of Bajoran women before meeting Major Kira. Can we talk about that line? Because O'Brien says, well, Cisco is on the way to meet his first officer, this Bajoran woman, Major Kira. Have you served with any uh, Bajoran women before? <laughs> and then he chuckles knowingly. Now, I think when this line was written in 1993 by a white guy, it was probably meant to be characterization for Major Kira. Like, uh-oh, she's going to be a firecracker. Yeah. But I actually love the line because it tells you so much about O'Brien. Yeah. I mean, he's a dirty, great misogynist. He's like, my wife's always nagging. And then here's a lady who is in command. And he, again, this guy did not go into Starfleet to explore the stars. He was a maintenance worker who wanted a job. And he's actually been to war. He's served in um, war against the Cardassians and has some scars 
mental and, and physical to prove it. And um, I think he's one of many actually really interesting human characters um, put on Deep Space Nine to tell an interesting story. And, and more for that now. But I love that O'Brien said that, even if it, was, it, it wasn't even intended. But go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is kind of cagey about his misogyny, isn't he? Yeah. He doesn't come right out and say it. <clears throat> He's just kind of there. So then we have the first scene between some of the best overactors of all time. Oh, and I will, f- I will defend Nana Visitor. But not Cisco. I will defend both of them. Yeah. Maybe because as a 12-year-old, I actually thought, <laughs> I remember thinking <laughs> that Nana Visitor deserved an Emmy for this. Oh. But also, okay, overacting. What, because she's angry? Is that why you're mad at her? Because she's angry? She just needs to calm down. Okay, because she just, <laughs> she just spent her whole life fighting in the resistance to get rid of occupiers, and look what just happened. She got some more occupiers I, in the no, station. No, no. I, look, I understand the motivations of the character. I do think she's an overactor. Um, they're both trying to out-enunciate each other. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's like they never made the transition from stage to screen yeah, comfortably. Agreed. Yeah, they're still. Yeah. It's like someone told them that Star Trek is Shakespeare, which you, you hear a lot from actors. Like the technobabble, just think of it as beautiful Shakespeare. But it's technobabble in front of a camera. Yeah. And I think neither of these two actors really got that memo. But I love this scene. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a very uh, 90s view of feminism, isn't it? Like... Hmm. that she's uh, the strong female character and she sort of has to explain to people that she's a gritty truth teller. Yes. She wants to take action and most people don't like her for it. She does. In fact, there's multiple times in this episode where she has to tell people that she's angry. Yeah. And it is a shame that you can't just let a powerful actor do that. Now, you do know who this character was originally supposed to be, right? I think you told me, but uh, how listeners? So um, the, the, the first officer on Deep Space Nine was originally intended to be Ro Laren, who was a Bajoran woman introduced on The Next Generation, um, played by Michelle Forbes, who is a fantastic actress. Yeah, she's sick. Um, and Ensign Rowe just commands this quiet presence and gravitas, and it would have been fantastic for her to be um, on the show, but yeah. unfortunately she, wanted, she didn't want to do a series, and so she declined. She, they, they begged her, yeah. but she declined. But I will say, I think Ensign Rowe and Cisco actually have similar energy, they're quiet but intense people. Oh, Having the two of them, yeah. Cisco and Roe, being like both quietly seething. But you get this balance here where they're both hella intense people. Yeah. But one of them's shouting when the other is emphatically yeah. emphasizing. Yeah. And it, maybe it works out for the best. Look, the 12-year-old Cole inside of you will defend this <laughs> until your dying day. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Nana. <laughs> Um, yeah, so in this scene, Kira explains that she fought for Bajoran independence and she disagrees with the colonial attitude of the Federation helping the Bajorans right after they'd finally gotten rid of Cardassian occupation. And like, she has a point. Um, we can delve into Federation paternalism, but maybe we don't have enough time. Oh, oh, I'm Adele. Oh, but, we're ready. <laughs> but right, I, I do later. love that I think Cisco says the Federation is only here to help. Yeah. Kira says the Cardassians said the same thing 60 years ago. Totally, yeah. Um, but Cisco tells her he requested a Bajoran national as his number one and that they will have to learn to compromise. And he seems very amused by the interaction. He's like, I, oh, Brian was right. She's spicy. If I, an apologist for any... <laughs> Cisco doesn't want to be here. And as he's going to say soon, dude, I, I'm raising a son. I don't want to be here. I don't think he's even 
taking this post seriously he's yet. kind of checked out. And if he's just sort of rolling his eyes at Kira, I think he hasn't even taken her or Bejo seriously yet. Yeah. All right. I hear you. So this discussion is interrupted by a comm on screen from Odo, who is the station's curmudgeonly chief of security. Um, or at least it's Odo's death mask from season one. <laughs> <laughs> the actor was cast... Uh, mere days before shooting began. No. Rene, uh, oh dear, I'm going to botch his, his I always want to say aubergine. Yeah, okay. Rene aubergine. <laughs> um, famous for roles such as the, the, the French chef on The Little Mermaid, for mm-hmm. example, and many other. I mean, the guy's, the guy's a veteran. Mm-hmm. But he was cast days before, and so they didn't have time to screen test his mask. Which is why he looks rough. That's why it's a death mask. And it just it, it gets progressively better, but it's it's a death mask. And the poor guy, that's not a shapeshifter mask, that's a death mask. But um, see, oh. I have reasons for everything. Go on. Great, amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is why we're good to you. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's alerting Kira to a threat. And there is some thieving afoot. Yeah, so, and then it cuts to a scene where Odo is... Uh, stopping a Buffy-looking demon. Uh, <laughs> the same at, thought. <laughs> um, and a young Ferengi, who is Nog, oh. who by the final season is a beloved treasure who I would die for. Uh, but right Mary now, do well Nog, who yeah. never amounts to more than thieving. Mm, that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right now, he's just a little Ferengi guy uh, doing some doing some crimes. Mm. Um, and they're stealing something. Um, and then we get some... A-grade Alex Mack CGI, goo technology. <laughs> well, we needed a reason to, to learn that Odo's a shapeshifter. He's a shapeshifter. So we had to dodge that crazy yeah. mace. Yeah, so Buffy guy like throws something in his head and yeah. then it all Alex Mack. But he shapeshifts. Yeah. Um, and on a side note, the security outfit for the station is a lovely vomit brown, vomit beige onesie. Yeah, fashion choices. So Kira's a redhead and so they put her in a red tunic. And Odo's a corpse. weird corpse <laughs> with sort of golden brown, like fake hair on top, wears gold. And it, I did always think it was an absurd decision that. Are we calling it gold? I mean, it's a gross beige. Let's go back to gross beige. Yeah. But why both of these characters had to be like monochromatic effectively was strange. But again, apologist Cole, isn't it cool? Isn't it cool that. The first officer and another officer on the senior staff aren't even in Starfleet. Amazing. Yeah. Admittedly. Like this show is not... Fashion choices aside. You think you've seen Star Trek, a bunch of Starfleet officers going around saving the universe. No, how about a show where some of the characters in charge aren't even Starfleet and don't even like Starfleet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Um, We love to see it. Um, So in this scene introduced uh, Odo, Nog, and also Quark. Mmm. yeah, there's a, there's a Ferengi main character. All they did on Next Generation was start out menacing with whips and then very quickly become a sort of bizarre um, anti-Semitic troll yeah. archetype. Yeah. Um, but now we're going we're gonna to learn to love the Ferengi on Deep Space Nine. I guess. Maybe. That's the, that's the goal. Well, there's certainly enough episodes about them. I don't know if we're going to recap every episode of this series. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Quark, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, so Quark explains to Cisco that Nog is, his, in fact, his nephew. And then they do some classic Ferengi snarling hissing. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, it doesn't come up that often. It's very, it, I think it's a throwback to Next Gen. When they were supposed to be villainous on yeah. Next Gen. But they when were they're crouching laughable. and snarling. Um, right. Yeah. And they but they do, they're, they're wonderfully alien 
I'll I'll say that much. Yeah, it's not just like a little nose ridge or a forehead yeah. bump. They don't have a forehead bump. Yeah. Yes. They've got many bumps. <laughs> so many lobes. <laughs> anyway, so Cisco sends Nog to the bridge with the wily notion that he can negotiate something from Quark in return. So maybe Cisco is starting to get invested. He's seeing where his natural uh, command skills can be useful. Mm, Players yep. got to play. Yep. Yeah. Meanwhile, Miles is on Cisco's case about catching up with Picard, and Cisco is all fine. I'll do it, but I don't want to. What does he got against Picard? Picard's the man. I don't know. Are we going to find out? Let's find out. Oh, but very quickly in this scene. Oh, yes. Um, Cisco fires a phaser to end this fight, and Odo's livid. And he says, absolutely no guns on the promenade. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I love Odo putting this human in his place, but I also just love... It's just another way that a human has shown up at this alien environment, doing what he's used to doing, firing a gun to make things better... And being told, what the heck do you think you're doing? Yeah. That's not how we do things. That's not how we do things. I turn into goo and everyone runs away. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what's up. <laughs> All right, go on. Excuse me. <laughs> All right. So then Picard summons him. Yeah. And then we cut to the conference room on the Enterprise. The mise-en-scene. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the yeah, mise-en-scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's light and bright and pastel. Mm. It's a um, different show. Totally, totally different compared to the gritty, dark... Uh, DS9. These comfy pink armchairs. Yeah. I want to hang out on this show. Is I this know. a show I can watch? Yes, you can. Mm. Seven seasons? Great. Seven seasons. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, they meet and greet, and Cisco uh, is he's tense, and he kind of drops the bomb that he met Picard when Picard was the cutest. Um, and Picard doesn't really acknowledge this. Patrick Stewart's face mm. when Picard's like, ugh, you're another one of those people? I think that's actually what goes through his mind. Really? Because Cisco's like, oh yeah, no, I met you and you were Lacutus. No, I think he's like, I think he's taken aback. I think he's annoyed AF. <gasps> Whoa! I think Picard. Oh, you are has not already... generous with Picard. Oh, no, I'm very generous. I think he has every right to be annoyed. T- tell me, I think Cisco's completely out of line in this scene. Oh, interesting. Okay, 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 all right. Because if. Um, and the guy got assimilated against his will, and now people are blaming him for this horrible attack, and Picard was one of the victims. Even 20, 30 years later, Picard season three and Captain Shaw is the exact same energy, like, oh, the cutest. I mean, this, this haunts Picard for the rest of his life, completely um, um, un- Yeah, I suppose, I suppose he doesn't acknowledge it, though. And I think that, um, that, yes, he's a victim as well, but clearly this is a victim in front of him. Um, you know, I will say, um, uh, something I'd wanted to mention before. The white teapot is fancy. <laughs> well, of course, Picard <laughs> is making a delicious tea. But uh, just very quickly about how Picard was assimilated by the Borg, becomes Locutus, um, and then leads the Borg's attack. And Locutus is then this identity that haunts Picard for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Now, Locutus is kind of the emissary for the Borg. This is a show called Emissary, mm. in which Cisco earns a title that he never asked for mm. and haunts him the rest of his career, no matter how he tries to shake it, and also becomes part of his identity. And I think it's really interesting that you have these two Starfleet captains who get hamstrung with these liaison roles. Look, I love Picard in this scene. I feel like he is acting and reacting. Oh, I think it's beautiful. Um, 
I think he's he's disgusted by Cisco's um, unprofessionalism. Do you think that's what's happening? Yeah. No. See, I I feel like it's still too fresh for Picard, um, and he's he's feeling the guilt. He's feeling the responsibility. I don't, th- I don't think it's discussed. Yeah, maybe I have 30 years later, I, like, I want Picard to give himself a break. Um, no. But, okay. No. Yeah, that might be happening. Yeah. Um, but, okay, I think the scene is also really, really interesting um, for what they actually discuss. Yes, correct. Um, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their discussion is about the Bajoran relief effort. Um, and Bajor has been depleted, left depleted of all resources, so the Federation has stepped in. Well, and he also says, he says, you know, Picard, he says, I, I've gotten to know the Bajorans, and I deeply care about them, and it is your job to bring them into the Federation. Mm. Essentially, collect them for the Federation. And even this, there's a bit of a paternalism there, like, oh, oh but the Bajorans are beautiful people, and he's saying... We love them, they're so cute. Right. Yeah. And uh, he's not saying get to understand the Bajorans, um, build strong relationships with them. He says, do everything short of violating the prime directive yes. to bring Bajor into the Federation, to assimilate Bajor. And that is, uh, that is the opening mission of our character on the show. Well, um, and Cisco's response is that you should probably find someone else for the job. Yeah, he says, I never wanted this. This is... I have to raise a kid on this alien space station. Alone because of you, Lucitas. I'm not inspired by this job. I don't want to be here. I'm not an administrator. And Picard says, do your job until I find someone else. Yeah. Okay. Then we cut to the security office and it's the negotiation between Quark and Cisco. (laughs) Not the first of many. Do they interact much in the series? Very rarely. Yeah. So basically Cisco wants Quark to stay on board DS9 to keep the civilian life afloat as a community leader, basically as a business owner um, and to sort of like create commerce. Um, you actually just pointed out, this is the first time you see Cisco actually starting to engage engage and see his value so and make some good decisions. And we, we know if you've seen the whole series, very often Cisco makes some very ethically dubious choices and they get more and more questionable to the point that a lot of Trekkies... Um, find it very controversial, but I was blown away that it's actually right here in this episode. He's he's compelling this dude to to encourage commerce on the station by keeping his nephew in jail. Yeah, he's using this little kid as a bargaining chip. Yeah, so it was all there, dudes. It was right there. Cisco was doing it from from day one. Yeah, this is I what mean, gets this guy going. Look, he's speaking Ferengi language, so maybe he's had dealings with him, and he knows that there has to be. The chips on the table. It's he has good. To negotiate it works. Way. Is it morally perfect? Not entirely, but maybe that is um, what makes Cisco one of the most compelling leaders of a Star and Trek show. I think it sort of sets up uh, the way things have to operate on DS9. You're on an alien station. You got to play by different rules. Sometimes by the aliens' rules, like yep. the Ferengi. And just like just a quick nod to the fact that both Quark and Odo as we previously discussed, are like unrecognizable in this. <laughs> the design totally changes. Whatever mouth gear happens becomes way better. You know what it is? Fun fact. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the actor Armin Shimmerman, who uh, we all know and love as the principal on Buffy, mm-hmm. among other mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. he hadn't got his nose fitted yet. 
And so he's actually wearing Rom, his brother's nose. Oh my god! In this first episode, so if you've seen that nose elsewhere, that's his brother Rom's, Rom's nose. nose. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so meanwhile, Kira is proving that she's a hands-on gal mm. by getting her hands dirty. Mm-hmm. She's cleaning up debris, and she's uh, taking off her jacket, <laughs> and she's in her little fancy white tank top undershirt. I mean, great fashion. We get to see that that little woven undershirt time yeah. and time again because it means. Kira is doing the hard work when she's and in her white... She's like, is a man going to do this? I guess I'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Better uh, take off my overshirt. Yeah. Um, there's a oh, few other episodes Cisco says, oh, I will do it. And they're both picking up this, this cardboard picking, debris. Picking up things and, and throwing them. Throwing it elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, you two. It's the hard work of just, yeah. running a space I, station. I often think there's sexual tension in a scene in, in DS9. Between yeah, these two? It. Yeah. I mean, anyone. Oh, it's because Star Trek is so neutered. They just... They all want to have sex, and the series won't let them. Yeah. I would love to discuss why Star Trek is so sexless. I'm sure that'll come up uh, on this podcast <laughs> at some point. So in this scene, Kira predicts civil war. Um, she thinks that the Bajorans are too divided, um, and that the only person that can possibly bring them together is Kai Opaka. Who? Says Cisco. Who? The, she's the spiritual leader. Um, we love Kai Opaka. Come on, Nana Visitor, the actress, when she's like, Cisco, you don't even know who the Kai is? Have you done zero research, much like me, for this podcast? This schmuck comes in, settling in, and he doesn't even know anything about my people. These are just more occupiers. Yeah, agreed. And then the creepo Bajoran guy pops his head in and says it's time to Cisco. Um, And he whisks him off. Mm. And then we cut to a shot of Bajor in Mm. ruins. In ruins. It's, it's nice because you see this shot of Bajor a lot, but it, they've cleaned themselves up. And I, 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 it was a nice touch that I hadn't noticed before yeah, that yeah, um, yeah. all these landmarks are in ruins. And Cisco walks through a spa-like room. Um, it is sort of quite broken down. There's one guy in the corner moving some bricks. So he's getting <laughs> it's the thing to do in this episode. It's got a fancy little pool in the middle. And then Kai Opaka enters. Looking like every capable deli lady you've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why I love her. I'm like, oh God, she's so friendly. Is she going to give me a slice of salami? Oh, Paka's great. And I think she, the actress brings it. I, I, the Bajoran religion, the fact that it even exists in this show is interesting, but the fact that they've so clearly drawn elements from human religions to make this made-up religion. Mm. You've got um, the Kai, who is basically the, the Pope. Mm. And then she feels Cisco's pa, pa, which is chi, you know, his life yeah, force. Yeah, yeah, But it's in the ear. Rum. So she's doing, she's doing some, like, pretty intense ear touching right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, it's a little too intimate for Cisco. He's kind of into it, though. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of an ear fetish in this series. Oh, the Ferengi. Not just the Ferengi. And the, and the yeah. And the par. The par of it You're all. You're so right. <laughs> um, so yeah, pa, uh, Opaka, um, explains that the par is life force and it's replenished by the prophets. Um, and she checks his ear, um, with some painful squeezing and tells him, <laughs> ironic, one who does not wish to be among us is to be the emissary. Well, that's the title of this episode. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and then she reveals that the fancy pool is a secret staircase. And Cisco is impressed. Cisco makes a little impressed face. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, Bajorans, maybe you're not so pathetic after nod. all. Um, she takes him underground. And from a cute little vanity, shows Cisco the first orb. Mm. The tear of the prophets. Not unlike almost like like an Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
It's kind of a beautiful scene. I think a lot of this. The lighting is great. Mm, you're right. Moody. And it is interesting because the writers decided after scenes like this that actually feel really nice. We don't want Deep Space Nine to have nice things. <laughs> and they, they, they very quickly throw a whole wrench into Bajoran religion yeah. and the Kai because Cisco shouldn't have it nice hanging out with this cute deli lady. No, no, no. It's too smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he goes to look at the orb and is immediately transported into... Whoa. A very fashionable tunic. It's gorgeous. They love the, the four-color, four-tone tunics. Block, mm. Like high-contrast, mm-hmm. block mm-hmm. colors. Uh, so yeah, he's on the beach and he's holding some drinks and he's got burnt feet. And this is when he meets his wife, Jennifer, for the first time. Mm. Oh, And she's a babe. She is a babe. Yeah. I like Jennifer. And she's rightfully annoyed that this weirdo just kicked sand on her. Yeah. She's annoyed, but even in this like sort of strange memory interaction where he's like realizing it's the first time they've met, she's into him. I mean, have you heard how emphatically he speaks? <laughs> so emphatically. <laughs> uh, okay, but come on, this is the scene that I think the guy is a brilliant actor when he realizes that he gets to relive mm-hmm. the moment he first met his wife and he lets out that noise. Ow! Ow! <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Stewart would never do that. He would never. Thank you, Avery Brooks. You're hired. (laughs) Um, No, you're right. This, like, this is a beautiful scene. And he he sort of delves straight back into wooing her. But Mm. he he doesn't want to ruin it. He He doesn't want to ask why, what's going on. He just knows how precious it is to spend time with... And he's like, I've got game. I'm going to do this. He does have game. He's got lemonade. Oh, Jennifer's hot. I mean, that bikini could pass in... In 2023. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 90s fashions have come around again. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two, thing, there's two things I'd like to mention. Okay. When he tells her that your mother is going to adore me. I love that line. Cute. Yeah. Uh, and then also, my father was oh, a... Excuse me. I did have something else to mention. Yes. Look at that other four-tone tunic the, behind Yes. Us. I was going to talk about this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the couple behind. Beautiful onesie. <laughs> yes, this goes in a two-piece. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, the other thing I wanted to say was... Uh, my father was a gourmet chef, mm. which is hilarious. Why? Well, I'm a chef and you don't actually. No, no one says that. That's <laughs> you don't not say a you're thing. a gourmet chef. No, you don't. Maybe you did in the 90s. But when I, brag I was born in 89. so When I brag about you, I say that you're a she's gourmet a, chef. She's a, my friend Lily is a gourmet chef. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> is that bad? <laughs> I would love some more gourmet wine, please. Yeah, yeah. Let me get you. <laughs> crazy thing there's so many really impressive things about this episode but you have a job of setting up eight new characters and a very complex situation but this episode spends a lot of time in cisco's head yeah and i'm just so glad it lets us sit there yeah, with him yeah 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 it's the cisco show um so sparkly lights cut back to the underground basil and opaka is like looking uh knowingly at cisco like she's uh just sliced a lot of prosciutto, just feeling good about it. Um, and she tells him that nine orbs have appeared over the past 10,000 years, but the Cardassians have stolen all of the other ones. This is the last one the Bajorans have. Um, and Cisco needs to find the Celestial Temple before the Cardassians do. Now, upon a, a close watch of this, did the urgency of the Kai's request seem a little forced? Oh. Why is she suddenly saying quick, you need to find the temple before the Cardassians do. Because well, the Cardassians have probably been looking for it for, for 60 years when they've been in Bajor. 
I mean, the Kai seems to know that that Cisco is the emissary that he's arrived. Yeah. Um, from what she said before about how she checks his par and is all, you don't even want it, but here you are. How ironic. Uh, so she she's got some intel. She knows that that he's uh, got a destiny. And that's where I arrived at. I thought this this assignment, this uh, these stakes don't make any sense. But then I remembered just what you said. She knows he's the emissary, whatever that means. And um, she might know that what, what Bajor needs right now is an emissary. Is this guy. Yeah. Um, and then she tells him that this is the journey. Um, so we're back on Deep Space Nine uh, for some, some of Quark's hijinks. So Quark's is reopened. There's Darbo. There's Morn. There's a guy playing a water fountain. There's a sexy alien lady. There's Underboob. <gasps> How often do you see Underboob? In the 90s? Rarely. Look, I've seen 15 series of RuPaul's Drag Race, and you don't see Underboob. She's doing it. That's She's fashion. She's pulling it off. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we see Morn. Ah, uh, oh, Morn. The barfly. Well, Morn not only is the most beloved character on this series, <laughs> but he, um, <laughs> he symbolizes so many things, and yeah. perhaps we won't even realize what they symbolize until the last episode of this podcast. Maybe. Thank you, Morn. <laughs> anyway, there he is. Uh, what happens in this scene? Oh, yeah. Uh, One of my favorite lines of the episode. Never trust Ale from a God-fearing people. Or a Starfleet commander who has one of your relatives in jail. Quark. He's a deep one. He gets it. Um, and he also has the best outfits. The one he's wearing looks like it's buttoned with a giant safety pin, and it's very Vivian Westwood. <laughs> um, and over the series, I was like, God, he wears so many good boleros. Quark's <laughs> <laughs> fashion is one of the best. It's great. It's really thick safety pin belts, right? It, yeah. It pops. Mm-hmm. Um... Okay, and then, whoa, so quickly, we meet Jadzia Dax, the station science officer, and Dr. Julian Bashir, and they've arrived. Two new characters. So first impressions of the two? Well, Jadzia Dax is, is maybe my, my favorite character on the show. Um, you but... do love hot women as a gay man. <laughs> but... The character had not been formulated yet. They knew, you know, the powers that be at Paramount knew they needed a hot woman. And so they hired this woman who'd been working in modeling, Terry Farrell. Um, and she, she talks about having panic attacks her first few Whoa. weeks on the job. She's in over her head with Technobabble. She's a science officer on the station. And half of her lines are Technobabble. But then on top of that, she's given a very, very complex character who even the writers haven't figured out yet. Yeah. Um, she was said that she was told that Jadzia Dax is a combination of Grace Kelly and Yoga. No. Yoda? Oh, there's the wine kicking in. <laughs> a combination of Grace Kelly and Yoda. I mean, she really Yoda. does yoga. I, I can see that. I can see that. Um, I mean, she's just like very confident and very hot. Right. Um, but uh, confident and hot does not an interesting character make. No. Uh, so then Cisco says to her, um, because Bashir's just like awkwardly hit on her. Ugh. Um, yeah. And then Cisco says, did you tell him about that slug inside of you? What? Which is a hilarious way to introduce the Trill species. Although I think the Trill do come up in Next Gen. I feel like Crusher has a romance with the Trill and then finds out he's all slug inside. So the Trill, very, yeah, they're a very cool species where you've got a slug inside you that retains the memories of its former hosts. And when the slug gets put in you you um, have all the memories of those former hosts. So Jadzia Dax might look like a hot 28-year-old lady, mm-hmm. but, but she's, she's lived. 328. Girl has lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. It was, um, the species was introduced on The Next Generation. A bit of a 
controversial mixed bag episode, but in, in part because it was a ham-fisted attempt at uh, transgender identity. Wow. Uh, it's about Crusher falling in love with a man, and by the end of the episode, she's a woman. And 1991 Beverly Crusher just says, nope, can't do this. Yeah. I, I cannot date this woman who used to be a man. And that's where the episode ends. And they've taken this, this basically a symbol of the transgender experience and made it a main character. Um, maybe just because it sounded cool to the writers, but it becomes a pretty cool vehicle for some very interesting storylines once they figure out how to tell the story of Dex. Yeah. Um, and that is for her to have hot scenes where she makes out with a variety of people. I mean, let's just say that um, Jedzia Dax said yes when Beverly Crusher said no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, okay, so Cisco and Dax knew each other when Dax was the previous host. Curzon is the other, like... Yeah, Cisco used to hang out with, with her when she was an old man. Yeah. Um, so we cut to Bashir checking out his new smash-up infirmary, and he seems thrilled. <sighs> and he says that he could have done anything because he's so brilliant, but he always wanted to do frontier medicine mm. in the wilderness. Um, and this deeply offends Kira, rightly so, and it's very classic. Season one. Uh, Bashir. I, I love this scene. Bashir is, is just a naive little schmuck, and the show wants us to know it. Um, but here, really laying it out, is another human coming to the station who um, thinks he's on the, the wild frontier, yeah. um, ready to, to go into the wilderness and be a hero. Yeah. He basically says, I'm here to be a hero. Uh, this is where the adventure is. Yeah. And Kira points out just what... Um, a one-sided perspective, that is. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so Cisco gets... She's a science officer, so Cisco gets Dax onto the orb conundrum. And then he uses his cute little nickname for her, Old Man. Um, and she calls him Benjamin. And it's it's a lovely relationship they have. It is uh, it's a nice friendship on this show. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then... Uh, so there's a lot of science babble. That's not really my area. So it's um, not the actress's area either, poor thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I empathize. Um, and then Jadzia looks at the orb and flashes back to the joining that she had with Dax, the, the symbiote. Mm, thank goodness she looks at the orb so the audience can all see what this symbiont transferal surgery looks like. Yeah, and it looks like um, she's lying there and you can see all her spots. And she's, she's looking at an incision happening and she's looking at old Curzon, the old man, who's about to have like old sluggy slug um, cut out of him because he's about to die. And then we, yeah, we get to see it. We get to see the sluggy slug. Hey, Dex. Dex is the sexiest character. Look at that beautiful slug. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Curzon dies and um, we see sluggy slug get put into Dad's ear. Just sort of like. Wiggle Slips his in way there. inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's scared, but she loves it. It feels great. We, we learn in, I think, a, a later season that she's been training for years t- for this moment where suddenly her brain is inda- inundated with the memories of, of eight other people. Yeah. And look, for, for an actress who's never done it before and she was a model, mm. I feel like uh, she plays inscrutable quite well. She plays complexity. I think she actually does great. Yeah. Yep. Um, and she's not given a lot. No, that's it. She's, she's given Grace Kelly meets Yoda. <laughs> and um, even before the writers knew it, um, she in, injects a little um, mischievousness yeah. and, and wile. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so we're back on board the Enterprise and Miles mm, pink is, chairs. Yeah, it's so Lots pastel. Of nice it looks so comfy. Leather, mm-hmm. carpet everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and O'Brien's sort of he's he's maybe looking around to say goodbye to Picard because we all know their special relationship <laughs> of the zero scenes that they have <laughs> developed over six years. Yes, those two. Uh, look, Picard. Picard's a legend, and he knows everyone on a ship. He does know everyone, and uh, I think he enjoys Miles's brevity. <laughs> all aboard captain yeah loves that uh so miles is about to depart and mm. picard he just he won't let that happen mm. um he's come running to the transporter room to say goodbye uh, it's we all know like, they're best friends it's like in a rom-com when someone chases you to the airport exactly because like don't go yet no miles and then he, t- miles. he tells the other transporter chief he just says hey um we need a moment. And she nods. And just, yeah. does she just go stand in the hall? Where She's, does she go? I don't know. Picard <laughs> tells you to do something, you do it. And he's having emotions. Emotions. Um, an Englishman and an Irishman in a transporter room having emotions. Yeah. Maybe they shake hands. Excuse me, a remember. Frenchman. Excuse me, a Frenchman. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then he asks for permission to uh, disembark. And then apparently Picard knows how to work a transporter. It's it's year two of the Academy. Yeah. Uh, I guess the scene <laughs> is just it's we'll just to up. say goodbye. It's, it's just a nice little moment to send O'Brien literally yeah. from the next generation to Deep Space Nine. But Picard looks genuinely sad. Like well, maybe that was his best friend. He's we trained don't know. in Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Reacting. Mm. <laughs> uh, back on Deep Space Nine. Oh, there goes the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Leaving Bye. Cisco to his own devices. Yeah, so we're back on Deep Space Nine, and this is when we meet Gal Dukat. Mm. We've seen some key players here. We've got Morn, now we've got Dukat. And it's a really short scene for how much of a player he'll be. It is the first of many, many times where Kira delivers Dukat. <laughs> oh, Dukat. Now, this is a Cardassian who, he looks like a penis. <laughs> Discuss? <laughs> looks like or acts like? Both. Yeah, both. He's a huge penis. This is where uh, I learned the word um, megalomaniac oh, as a 13-year-old. Yeah, great. Um, and now, uh, many, many years on, um, I understand Dukat's psychology even more. And I know that he used to be the commander of Deep Space Nine, and now he has to walk into the command room as a guest. And this is, this is the most humiliating thing that Dukat could ever really do, right? A, K- a Cardassian, this is. Like, yeah. It's like a, it's a death. Yeah. But he's, he's still managing to be super smug about it and to give some veiled threats. And Cisco has another veiled threat. He's like, we're right next door and I'll make sure, um, I'll make sure our dog doesn't pee on your lawn. Yeah, oh, so good. <laughs> but yeah, so Dukat reveals that he knows Cisco met with Kaiwa Parker and took an orb. So like, it's very, um, mm. lots of underhanded spy work. Which mm-hmm. More stakes, more sense. urgency. Yeah, yes. so, and, we'll, and we'll learn more about that later. Um, Cisco denies it. He's like, oh, what of? Cisco loves it. He loves stuff like this. And here I've written, the sexual tension is thick. (laughs) (laughs) Again. I just feel like everyone is boning or wanting to bone. These characters just need an outlet and the writers don't give it to them. Maybe it's why it's such good watching. Because the tension is is so palpable. Um, So we're back with Dax. Uh, she's discovered that the Denorius belt is probably mm. where the Celestial Temple is. Mm-hmm. With some seemingly like pretty standard calculations, so it's surprising <laughs> the Cardassians haven't found it. She's like, I entered it into the computer. Yeah, so the science officer Googles neutrino emissions. <laughs> it's great. 
Oh, God. Yeah. And look, I'm going to be very honest. This is not what I'm in Star Trek for. And I know that upsets a lot of people. I'm not in it for the, the neutrinos either, but I'm in it for characters like Dax to, to kill it at things like science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because how often does a hero get to do like science? Like I'm a yeah. hero because I Women science. Women in STEM. Right? right? <laughs> Dax in STEM. So I'm not going to complain. Again, shame on you. Shame on you. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> I'm a terrible feminist and a terrible person. Um, so then we're back at Quarks. The Cardassians are all there. They're having a grand old time, but Kira and O'Brien are shutting it down Mm-mm. after the Cardassians have won a, a huge pile of latinum, mm-hmm. and Quark is all, you can't do this, um, and there's like a you know, bit of back and forth mm. about that, um, but eventually he bundles up the latinum for them in a hessian sack. Yes, a very, um, a very sturdy hessian sack to hold all that heavy latinum. Yeah, nothing to see here with this here hessian sack. <laughs> so the Ferengi bartender gave the Cardassians this Hessian sack. Does that mean that the bartender was in on it? Yeah, the or... bartender's in on it. So they've got this this cool extra Ferengi dude, like, in, in cahoots with Odo. Well, Rom couldn't do it because his nose is on someone else. <laughs> he can wear his nose in any scene where Cork shows up. <laughs> yeah, so these hijinks play out, and uh turns out to be a ruse. Mm, um, Odo, subterfuge. Odo has shape-shifted on board the Cardassian ship. Um, and he is the Hessian sack. So, you know, plot stretch number two to show that Odo is a shapeshifter. And he has youth. And he can do things yeah. other than be cranky about guns yeah. and look like death. Yeah. <laughs> Odo is like a Marvel superhero in, in the Star Trek universe, which sometimes I, I, he feels a little out of place with just how utterly like, superpowery yeah, his yeah. superpowers are. And. Um, but he's just like not very ambitious. He just wants to be a security officer on board like, and out of the way. And I thought we could talk more about that. I think the next episode is actually about him. Yeah. But why does a superhero just hang out on uh, a deadbeat space station in, you know, the wilderness, as, as Dr. Bashir says? Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, he's, he's gotten on board to like shut down their homing technology or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Odo gets his moment. Thanks, Odo. Yeah. Alex Mackie in the house. And then they, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, Cisco and They're Dax. off to, to track down those neutrino emissions. They're off to the wormhole. Mm-hmm. The what? Uh, what? Oh, mm. sorry. Uh, but first we were trying to get Odo back on board. And there's some malfunctions. Uh, better call O'Brien. Better call O'Brien. He just moved his wife and child here to fix malfunctions. <laughs> um, but uh, I have nothing to say about this scene, except there's a hilarious bit where um, the transporter isn't working and he just kicks it and then it works. I mean, and it's like classic O'Brien. Like we've all been there with the vending machine, haven't right. we? It's like all these other characters are having these crazy, you know, these beautiful characterization moments about their motivations. And O'Brien's moment is kicking. kicking. It. Yeah, kick it. <laughs> kicking the bulkhead. Yep. Um, and Odo's back and he's safe and, and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and and Odo, Kira, Odo has no emotions. He's, he's got no emotions, but Kieran, Odo, there's like hell. a bit of a friendship there maybe. Mm-hmm, because Odo nodded at her, which is yeah, the most yeah. he's given anyone the exactly. whole show. Yeah. So then Dax and Cisco uh, off to the Denorius belt. Denorius belt, and they enter a wormhole. <laughs> okay, Lily, question: Yes, who discovered the wormhole? Whoa! 
who's like, let's he, go, let's lay in these coordinates because of all these neutrino emissions, and let's go and see yes. what we can find. Yes. Was it Jed Zia Dax who discovered the wormhole? Yes, it was. This is my biggest nit to pick with this mm. episode. But if we if we want to split hairs about it, like Cisco's in command and he delegated a job. He told Jed Zia to find the wormhole, and then Jed Zia, mother F and Dax, it's Hermione all over again. Yeah. Harry's being anxious and, and emo-y, but it's his story. And then women are just over there doing science and being competent, and they're like, oh, you're welcome. I guess uh, she's not looking for the glory. She's just out to experience life. Well, I give you glory, Jadzia. Look, if you believe in hierarchy, technically he did the job because someone did it for him. And I know about that. I'm a chef. Uh-huh. All right. All right. Well, Jadzia, I see you, and I know you don't need it because you're zen and you're not esteem-sensitive because of all the lifetimes Aww. of wisdom. But they find a wormhole. Um, and it, just quickly, the design looks like a 90s bowling alley. <laughs> Inside Marianne, the wormhole. And it's like, pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> like an arcade game. Love it. <laughs> um, and then they wind up 70,000 light years from Bajor. What? Yeah. A wormhole to the other side of the galaxy? What? You're going to just like pick up Voyager while you're there? No, you're wrong side. Wrong side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they hypothesize that this is probably how the orbs arrived in Bajor. And that this might be the first stable wormhole known to exist. Which is pretty cool. Uh, so what happens? They try to go back through the wormhole, but wind up somewhere, which is maybe the Celestial Temple. It's all starting to add up. Is it? Everything these, these Bajans Everything are talking about, these that prophets. Dax Googled is lining up. Dax knew how to Google. <laughs> hey, Google, have you seen something weird? <laughs> uh, so they go back the other side. So they side. go back. Um, and then they wind up in this spot that um, Cisco sees it as like a scary, stormy hellscape. Um, but Dax's view is of like a beautiful, pristine English garden. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So what what was your take on on that little moment where they get out of the the runabout? Cisco sees this horrible, rocky landscape, and, and Jadzia is in, in sort of paradise. Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I suppose is Cisco seeing reality or is Dax? I, I guess my interpretation, besides just cool opportunity for CGI and like whoa factor, is that we know that Cisco is in some rough headspace. Mm. He uh, lost his wife three years ago. He doesn't want to be in Deep Space Nine. He um, he's he's a pessimist right now, and he's assuming the worst of everything. And so it's almost like if he were to land on an unknown alien planet, like he'd almost expect this. He'd be mm-hmm. like, "Well, yeah, go figure." Here we are. There's like rocky crevasses and terrible lightning storms. Right. Whereas Jedzia, um, we've already talked about how she's, you know, Grace Kelly and Yoda combined, is pretty stoked to be in this wormhole, in this paradise. Now, if that you... she discovered. As that she, thank you. Yeah. If you will indulge me for perhaps my favorite Easter egg of the entire episode. Great. Um, I would love it if the location scout of the series actually did this on purpose, <laughs> but it would be insane. This park that Jedzia sees is the exact same Los Angeles park. <laughs> because as we all know, Star Trek isn't about exploring the universe. It's about exploring right. Los Angeles parks. Yeah, correct. It's the same park that um, is the location for the episode in season three where um, it's, it's Brigadoon in space. Okay. And Jedzia falls in love and is so happy that she's ready to abandon her Starfleet career and the Trill world and she is happier than she could ever conceivably be. 
Now, nerdiness almost over. We learn <laughs> that these aliens in the wormhole have no concept of time. Time doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So they already know that Jedzia's moment of pure bliss is on this planet. Whoa. And that's what they show her when she arrives at the wormhole. Whoa. And there's a 102% chance that that's a complete coincidence. Yeah, the, that one scouting location for this TV show is like, what? Well done location, Scout. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. Um, so what happens next? Oh, yeah, yeah. So a floaty orb approaches them and like gives them like a little probe. And then it gets all punchy and punches Dax out. Um, and she sort of starts to see the hellscape that um, mm. Cisco is seeing. Um, and then it sort of puts her somewhere and it swallows Cisco, who fades out to white. Mm. Now this is, okay, what happens next is very strange to me. Yeah, so out of the wormhole comes shooting the orb. The scanners pick it up back on Deep Space Nine. And Dax makes it back onto the space station, courtesy of the orb. It just like kind of beams her back. And what did you make of this? I thought it was utterly absurd that suddenly they just packaged Dax into a tiny little orb and sent her back home. I mean, look, it's a bit of a um, deus ex, ex machina. Definitely. Yeah. And I, again, I, I guess I'm just here to defend Dax, but it makes no sense to me. And I will give the DS9 writers credit that seven years later in the last season of the show, they actually explain why Cisco sticks around the wormhole and a little bit more about why the prophets are so interested in Cisco, which definitely the writers had not thought about in this episode. But the showrunners who go on for the next seven years do the work and actually close some of these loopholes, which I find very impressive. Okay. I mean, look, I guess as a layman, I didn't really question it. I'm like, off you go, Dad. Well, this is the seventh time You're I've seen this emissary. episode. <laughs> Jesus. So Dax is safe on board DS9. And meanwhile, Cisco is flashing through memories of his life. Um, and then we find out this is the way the celestial beings communicate, which is through his personal memories, um, particularly of people in his life um, and interactions he's had. And I, I honestly love this it's whole amazing. sequence. It's amazing. It's really beautiful. Like, even Jaco shines in this. He does, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, What is this? <laughs> so there are different species, um, and they don't understand the concept of time because they don't exist in a linear way. Uh, and Cisco has to explain the concept of time. And it... Um, Bizarrely, even though this is the strangest thing that's happened the whole episode, this is just classic bread and butter Star Trek. Mm. Since the 60s, Star Trek is all about running into crazy, omnipotent aliens who communicate telepathically and make you see weird visions. Even every, almost every pilot episode of Star Trek is about running into some crazy, omnipotent being. So even though this is the strangest thing that's happened, it's like, oh yeah, this is, this it's is Star Trek. It's familiar territory. Yeah. It's like less gritty social, political kind of drama. And yeah, yeah, and interestingly, I mean, Cisco is pulled out of the nuts and bolts of uh, convincing Quark to open a bar, getting his first officer to calm down, and he's suddenly sort of on trial uh, defending humanity, which is exactly what Picard did the first episode yeah. of Next Generation. Q, the omnipotent being, puts him on trial to defend humanity. Yeah. So the rest of the episode now jumps between scenes on... Deep Space Nine and Cisco's encounter with the wormhole alien. And I'm assuming that Cole has done a close reading of the flashback Cisco sequences. So maybe I'll, I'll sort of just, I'll move between the scenes, but um, come at me as you are, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on Deep Space Nine, Kira wants to move the station to the mouth of the wormhole. 
um, estate claim for the Bajoran. So it's very like yeah. So uh, back on back where you know corporeal entities are just trying to get by, they got this problem to solve. And I um, it's a nice character moment for Kira. She's the first to realize the value of the wormhole. She's been cranky this whole episode, but she's like, wait, there's a wormhole in Bajoran space. I need to capitalize on this for my people. Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, and then, of course, we learn a little bit more about Odo. Mm-hmm. Um, so he reveals that he was found in the Denorius belt, which is like a bit of foreshadowing. Um, and he thinks the answers to the questions that he has about himself might be through the wormhole. And they just might be. They just might be. I mean, the writers think they just might be. The writers actually have no idea. But or do they? They have no idea. Look, you give the writers a lot of credit. Can we just... Well, I'll give the writers this much. They created a show with a lot of unanswered questions, Mm. and then over seven years came up with answers to those questions, unlike... Lost. Lost. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, a lot of the questions are quite character-driven. Yes. um, And sort of small stakes. So it's maybe more achievable than like a huge thought experiment but again i know i'm kissing the feet of the writers the the odo question of where he came from is a very small character driven question that becomes a massive answer Mm. that guides the course of the entire series series. Um, and that's credit to these writers just thinking like how do we answer this question that we posed and and what we can do when we go go down this go down this wormhole of thought. Mm. Oh, <laughs> um, how much wine have you had? I mean, I'm feeling a little fuzzy. Just the but right I'm amount. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe it's right that by the time I'm on my third glass of wine, Cisco is um, defending humanity and the trial against non-corporeal life forms. Exactly. Because things are getting fuzzy. Things are getting real fuzzy on screen filters and also in my brain. Um, so the celestial beings suggest killing Cisco because he's a corporeal being who threatens annihilation. Um, and this is spoken through the memories of Picard and Locutus. And I think, maybe I'm getting predictable, but these aliens, they say, we exist to seek contact with other life forms. They actually admit, they basically admit to sending these orbs out to, to contact other life forms. And they see humans as aggressive and invasive. Mm-hmm. And I, the link I went to is humans at the beginning of every Next Generation episode saying, we are here to seek out new life and new civilizations. And then they come up against antagonists like the Borg. Mm-hmm. And the prophets are accusing Cisco so and humans of the same thing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, so Cisco is defending humanity and he argues that people are some of their experiences, but at the same time, he's sort of realizing that the, the beings are not linear. So he has to explain what this is, mm. um, what and is that his this? existence is linear and therefore that makes him not a threat. Right. And it's a bit of a tenuous case, Cisco. I think you're really grasping at straws. Um, meanwhile, back on DSI. By the way, can I just say, yes. but like the, the baseball player, whose like only line in the show is with this Boston accent lisp. <laughs> Aggressive. Adversarial. Adversarial. Um, my best friend in fifth grade and I, we, went, we just spent one whole summer walking around yelling, Aggressive. Adversarial. To each other. <laughs> so that line really brings me back. Is he listening now? Yeah. Doug, thank you for listening to this oh. podcast. And thank you for watching Deep Space Nine with me. You're a big reason for why we're here tonight. Uh, Truth. Meanwhile, O'Brien is on DS9. He's grumpy and he's getting shit done. His sleeves are up. 
And uh, long story short, he manages to move Deep Space Nine closer to the wormhole. Cisco and the celestial beings discuss death in a linear existence mm-hmm. through the character of Jennifer. Um, Cisco says that each day affects the next, and he also brings up the concept of pleasure. And these these aliens don't even know what pleasure is. They gotta live a little. Like, what are they doing? Come on, guys, mix it. What are yeah? What are you doing? What do you exist for, shooting, wormhole aliens? Shooting orbs out your wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> So many choices that I mean that actually make this whole sequence really beautiful. I love that the prophets discover for themselves that they are characters in Cisco's mind. They don't even know they've they've sort of gone into Cisco's mind telepathically, and they're learning. We are all individuals. We all have relationships with this Cisco person, and the the Jennifer prophet. I feel like she even starts to develop these feelings. She she learns how much Jennifer she, meant to Cisco yeah. and she starts to just understand human love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really cool. Yeah, and they, they can't believe that people exist in a linear way and then and then just die one day. It's just the most it awful is thing. Outrageous. Which is fact. Yeah. Now okay, when actual Jennifer and actual Cisco are having a cute picnic and they talk about domestic inquiries. Is that the worst flirting to ever hit television? Like I'm like, get, Trek, let's get back to the beach. Star Trek writers. Oh, gross. Learn sexual tension and don't talk about domestic inquiries. Oh, God. That being said. Is this how straight people talk to each other? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me, girl. I'm a straight woman. <laughs> <laughs> Is this how Star Trek right. nerds flirt with each other? <laughs> so now we've, we flash back to the day that Jennifer dies. Back in the memory of... Back with um, the Bolian... <laughs> the blue guy. The blue guy's a bowling alley. <laughs> Go on. Um, so Blue Jensen, he's like walking down and he's uh, he's looking into the room where, where Jennifer's body is. He says, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here, but um, then why do you exist here? Mm, how about I that shot that she, with the... She just walks out in her bikini. Bikini cat Jennifer, Jennifer. Come, like walks out of the fire. I mean, I guess I think it's sort of why she's confused. She's like, why do I have to be dead here, but I'm in a hot bikini there? Mm. Like, I, I am Jennifer, right? Mm. And he tries to explain loss again. And then something really interesting happens. A Cardassian ship who's been tailing Cisco enters the wormhole and disrupts the proceedings. Um, suddenly, everything is unstable, and the wormhole aliens are upset, and then the wormhole closes and the aliens explain to Cisco that when corporeal beings invade the wormhole, it disrupts them. Mm. Question mark. So why have they chosen to do it? Would I think it just maybe maybe I'll stick a, a pin in that question yeah, because okay. that's that's we wouldn't expect that based on what happens to us the, the show. Yeah. But they go on to you know continue about philosophy yeah. and, and and they're back on the beach and mm-hmm. then he's back with Picard. They're gonna kiss. <laughs> the actor's actually that close but yeah uh, Cisco sort of argues that every choice has a consequence and when you live in a linear fashion you have to know that um, you'll have consequences for everything that you choose to do Yeah, I guess without knowing a, what will happen it's a, it is again a strange defense like we mean you no harm because we have no idea what we're going to do yeah that's effectively then, what he's saying and then it becomes some like uh hetero propaganda um, about people getting married and having babies and that that's the point. 
<laughs> I, I the procreation it. is the is sort of like the point. I think. Well, I guess I just see love as the point. But you know, the aliens get procreation. They're like, oh, procreation. Oh, okay. Sure, we do that. You should have said that Great. in the beginning. They bring up baseball. Yeah. I love that baseball is present in the very first episode of Deep Space okay. Nine. All right, all right, all right. Well, I mean, first of all, it's for the rest of the show. It becomes an amazing uh, use of symbolism. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, right now they're using it as a metaphor for how a linear life existence would work because actions have consequences. Yep. But the prophets see it as um, competition and aggressiveness. Mm. Aggressive, adversarial. Adversarial. Yeah. Which, frankly, oh like God. sports are aggressive and adversarial. Yeah. So the prophets know what's up. Yeah. But baseball is also like the most American sport ever. It's like apple pie and baseball. And he's not just Federation, he's an all American man. And I think so often in Star Trek, when you're talking about like the Federation and humanity, like you're actually talking about the United States. Yes. And so here we are. Cisco is basically defending American colonialism yes. and manifest destiny, defending why we go to the final frontier, why we go out into the wilderness, why we want to be heroes, um, the Bashirs of the world. It's almost like America becomes on trial. Mm. About time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's also making an argument for the, the sanctity of life um, being linear and being finite. I think that's what I get. As, again, a, as a non-American, that's what... That's... So if you were a, a wormhole alien, why would you be compelled? Okay, like, they think their lives are precious. Why are they not threats? Because um, they're kind of like a fly. They live for a few days and then they're done. Yeah. My existence is way more complex. I guess they're seeing that Cisco is... A complex little fly. And he's, you know, he's obsessed with his wife, his son, moments of love, moments of loss. And he's not obsessed with assimilation. Yeah. And that they, uh, they can empathize. They, f they find some similarity because Cisco hasn't actually been living in a linear fashion. He's been living um, in the past. Yeah, so it, it ends. The, Cisco's trying to teach them the whole time. He's trying to teach them about humanity. But they end up showing him that he is nonlinear. He's stuck at this moment where his wife died. And he has to concede where he's at right now. His, his mental state is nonlinear. He's hung up on the loss of his wife. And it's actually fascinating that that's the very final interaction you see in this episode between Cisco and the aliens. They sort of nod when he concedes that his life is not linear. And then the next thing you know, Cisco comes out of the wormhole yeah. and says, we can travel through the wormhole as much as we like. Ah, oh, the negotiation's not even in there. It's not even featured in the episode. Oh, so and what I else did they talk about? And what happened? And why did the aliens, this concession that Cisco's life isn't linear and that he's frankly traumatized he's and, stuck in a trauma loop and yeah. yeah and he's working through grief um that's what convinced them to allow these pesky little ants to travel through the wormhole yeah it's like when we as humans watch the movie ants and we're like <laughs> hang on i'm woody allen <laughs> uh so there, there was the b story happening as well with um kira who was mm. dealing with a diplomatic nightmare Oh, Gold Jassad. Gold Jassad. He's the man. I mean, he's very skin-colored. 
Is he not the MVP of acting for this episode? It's great. He he does a lot with what he's given. He's just so indignant. If I were one of them, I would make it my goal to just try to piss off Goljasad I mean, as look, much as possible. He, I feel like um, Dukat, well, we find out later, is like super into Bajoran women. Yeah. But Jassad is like a racist. He hates Bajorans. Okay. I just and thought... humans. But he's like, don't you think, he's just like got a permanent sneer. He is just like <laughs> outraged that anyone is even speaking to him. I feel like the actor is just like, my motivation is to sneer. Yeah. And he nails it. I love yeah. Goljasad. Um, so yeah, what happens is he doesn't believe that the Cardassian ship that's disappeared and gone through the wormhole, he doesn't believe that, like that little line about how the, it's gone through the wormhole, mm. the wormhole's collapsed. He sneers, yeah. He sneers at that. Um, and then he does a classic trope of, you have one hour. Mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. make them reappear mm-hmm. or whatever. And then Kira bluffs Gul Jisad into thinking that they have the ability to defend themselves. The Cardassians attack. Pew, pew, pew. I don't really care about battle scenes. But, but you can talk about it if you what want. What matters is that Dax gets to be clever. O'Brien gets to kick some bulkheads. Kira gets to strategize. And we see the, you know, the teamwork, you know, being teamy. It's great. Oh, I feel like Bashir fixes a, a small wound. Oh, yeah, we haven't even... So, again, eventually, Jassad gets pissed off and starts pew-pew-pewing. Yeah. To the point that, like, a lot of bulkheads fall on bystanders. Yes. Allowing Bashir... But I thought that uh, Kira and uh, Cisco dealt with the bulkheads by, like, throwing them around places. Ah, but the they, just, they put them back up in the ceiling, only for them to fall again on the passersby. Oh, now they got to clean it up again. More, more cleanup, but it's what Shit. we do in, in episode two. They're picking up more bulkheads. Oh, spoilers. Excuse Don't me. Excuse tell me. people about the bulkheads. But what matters <laughs> is that we see Bashir mending people, mm. and we learn, ah, oh, this man is a good doctor, which will come in later in, in later episodes. Yeah. Him but being, he's a good doctor. It, it's important, yeah. So he's a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Characterization. Yep. So then the wormhole reappears. And Cisco, Hal's DS9, comes back on board, and the Cardassians... Towing Dukat's ship in his wake. Oh, is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A little F you to the Cardassians. Sure, like, yeah. I know you guys don't like us, but uh, we're going to save you yeah. in, your, in our tractor beam. And while we're talking about it, mm-hmm. we don't know what happened with the wormhole aliens. Do we know what happened with Cisco and Dukat? It's... I, it makes me wonder, and I've actually researched deleted scenes... <clears throat> And there's no sex scene. explicit. Just all sex scenes. <laughs> there's there's a number of deleted scenes, but none of them have more interaction between the wormhole aliens or Dukat. So we don't know what the heck happened to Dukat's ship in the wormhole or in the Gamma Quadrant. But more interestingly, um, we don't know how Cisco finally convinced the prophets to let people go in and out, and because I mean now we've got a, um, access to the Gamma Quadrant, and it's going to revolutionize commerce and sociopolitics for Bajor for the rest of the series and how these aliens who created the wormhole are okay with it we never actually learn and all I can speculate is that they've really taken a look inside Cisco's soul and um, he's, he's shown them really what Captain Kirk and Captain Picard tell us at the beginning of every Star Trek episode opening until now, which is humans are here to seek out new life and new civilizations, to explore strange new worlds, to boldly go where no one's gone before. This is, this is humanity and this is what we're here for. And the prophets see him and believe him and let him keep doing what Star Trek captains have been doing for, for all of Star Trek. Mm. I guess. Um, and maybe they just like 
traumatized persons because they're funnier. And I guess they're super into traumatized people. Yeah. It really got me wondering just how much the prophets even care about little ants, including Bajorans, mm. um, how much they care about Cisco. And I think you could make an argument that they actually care deeply about Cisco because he, he is their emissary. Mm. Again, this is called emissary, and it's all about Cisco's suddenly getting this new role in life, which is to be the liaison between these aliens and, and all us mm. little ants. And the prophets are invested in that relationship. And maybe they're invested in him healing and coming to terms with his grief and moving on. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like they, they knew exactly what they were doing and they're helping him come to terms with himself mm-hmm. so that he can then be their emissary. Maybe that it's, he's like a little soap opera and they're super invested. The, uh, they're the prophets, like going to like record a podcast about The prophets it. love some drama. Yeah. And frankly, so do I. <laughs> Uh, so there's a station log to conclude where Cisco explains that the wormhole aliens have agreed to provide safe passage for travelers through the wormhole. And after this, Cisco has a final meeting with Picard. Where he says, hey, Picard, you know how I was thinking about getting a transfer? A minute. Let's do this. I like it. Picard doesn't know what happened. He's relieved, so he doesn't have to, to find someone new. It's a whole lot of paperwork. But Cisco's like, I'm ready for this. Yeah. And then, of course... <laughs> I mean, O'Brien gets the final line. Does he? <laughs> I believe his final line is about fixing some fuel conduits. Sure. And it sets the tone. <laughs> and for the rest of the series, we know that O'Brien's going to be trying to fix some ODN relays and some fuel conduits. Um, and the gosh rest, darn it, he's going to try. The rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay, can I talk about how I think this episode proved that Deep Space Nine deserves to exist? Great. Hear me. So... I told you at the beginning that it set out to do two things, to prove that it's time for another Star Trek show and the world needs another Star Trek show, and that that Star Trek show should be set on a space station. Mm-hmm. So I think the coolest thing in this episode is that the, the most problematic characters are these humans who have shown up to assimilate Bajor. Mm-hmm. The show came out in 1993, two years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and have you heard the term like the end of history? I haven't. So in the early 90s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of very prominent scholars had the, the gall to actually declare that it was the end of history. Mm. Francis Fukuyama actually famously wrote a book saying it's the end of history and we did it. Liberal democracy had won and humanity had like gotten there. Like, good news, everyone. We did it. Wow. And people actually believed it and took it seriously. Way to jinx it, guys. Right? (laughs) How could people think that the end of the Cold War was was the end of, like, strife on Earth? And what is actually amazing about this episode is that you've got a bunch of humans, a.k.a. Americans, who show up saying, all right, we're ready to bring our liberal democracy. You're welcome. And the prophets are like, wait, are you sure... Because we don't like that. You guys seem really aggressive. Episario. And you've got some issues to work out. Yeah. And they force Cisco to be like, oh yeah, actually we're, we're explorers. And the prophets are like, yeah, you're like us. And so how about you spend your time exploring yourselves? I think Cisco says we are here to explore. We explore the galaxy and we explore our lives day by day. Mm-hmm. That's what Star Trek's about. And the prophets are like, yeah, on this Star Trek show... 
how about you guys stop thinking that it's the end of history and that you've done it and you actually keep looking within and understanding yourselves better. Mm -hmm. And that's what a new Star Trek show needs to actually like call out Americans and Western civilization for thinking they're the shit. Yeah. The other cool thing is, okay, so why are we here on the space station where no one's moving? We don't really know what Roddenberry thought of Deep Space Nine because he actually passed away before it premiered. Rick Berman claims that he ran the idea by Roddenberry. Sure. Very dubious. Roddenberry's assistant says, no, you didn't, and he would have hated it. He heard the premise and thought, Star Trek is not about being a space hotel. Yeah, and it's not a utopia. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marina Sirtis has said she actually made waves because she was talking. I love Marina Sirtis, who she's played great. Deanna Troy. Yeah. And she's like, what did she say? The truth is, if, if Roddenberry was alive, DS9 would have never been made because he absolutely said no to it, saying Star Trek is about exploring space. It's not about a hotel in space. All these people, including the fans, they said, a space station is not Star Trek. Being stuck in place, not moving, is not what we're about. And isn't it cool that... What did Cisco learn with the prophets? He learned that he, until coming to Deep Space Nine, had been stuck in one point in his life. He'd been dwelling on this moment where his wife died and he couldn't move past it. And the prophets say, it's time for you to move past this. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually going to be a dynamic character who has a lot to learn and a lot of ways to grow. And I guess basically for the rest of the show, the characters are growing the questions being asked get more and more complex, and it's actually one of the most dynamic shows. Yeah. So Space Station, be damned. Everything is evolving and changing in really cool ways. Yeah, that's a beautiful thesis. Okay, I've had four glasses of wine. I'm about as fuzzy as those wormhole visions right now, but did you understand my point? It's great, and you look great. Oh, stop. <laughs> that's just the wine goggles. What? You look amazing. <laughs> Cheers. And I'm just finishing finish off the, the bottle. bottle. Any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Look, I did do, I did do a short uh, analysis of the final scenes. I can read that. Great. Odo and Bashir have a boring interaction. Quark makes a move on Kira, who is a strong, independent 90s Ooh. woman who won't have a bar of it. And she's all like, if you don't remove your hand from my hip, then rah, rah, rah. And yeah. then um, Quark is a rapist and he's like, I'm into that. Um, Dax, Cisco, and O'Brien discuss repairs as we discussed, um, and all the scenes move in quick succession with the characters walking and talking in a sort of Aaron Sorkin style. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then the camera pans away to show the bustling promenade, and the final shot is of the exterior of Deep Space Nine. Roll credit. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Oh. So, uh, Lily, how'd that wine bottle hit you? It was... Deep Space Fine? <laughs> I was trying to come up with a pun to do with Tarek Nah. <laughs> so it was Pinot That's so much nerdier than anything I said that whole episode. I'm coming in here with Terak Nor puns. I feel better about this whole like Los Angeles Park Easter egg observation. Oh my thing. god, I love that. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that my comms badge or am I buzzed? <laughs> <laughs> Earth to Lily, you're drunk. <laughs> All right, nerds, signing off. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Deep Space Wine is hosted by Lily Rawson and myself, Cole Paulson. Music provided by Cercle Nouvelle, artwork by Danielle Vernelson, and special thanks to Bloom and Izzy Rawson, who, whether she likes it or not, will eventually become a DS9 fan.